Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Tess Gerritsen, who is the co-author with Gary Braver of Choose Me, a detective noir thriller. Tess Gerritsen is the author of 12 books in the Rizzoli and Isles series, which became a hit television series for, I guess, seven seasons. There were also 14 romantic thrillers, five medical thrillers, two books in the Tavistock series, co-director of a documentary, which we'll talk about. And there's a movie called Island Zero, which currently can be streamed on Hoopla, which is a free library app. Before we go into these other elements of your career, I interviewed you in 2004. That was the book Body Double, which was the fourth in the series. After that, Rizzoli and Isles became a media sensation through television. I believe at that particular time, you might have mentioned, or, or is that too soon, that there was discussion. Did it go that far back? It's possible because, you know, it takes a long time to develop a television series. And I was called by the producer maybe a year before saying he was interested in it. Then it took him a year to finally get a good script and a few more months to finally cast it. So it's very possible. I think that Body Double was one of the books that he had read that made him think this is going to be a great TV show. Not only did it get to TV, but it became a hit, and it's now on HBO Max. We're going to talk a little about that, but first, let's go back and talk about this latest book, Choose Me. Based upon what I've seen, this is your first collaboration on a novel? It is, and it started in an unusual, maybe it's not so unusual a way, it started over cocktails. Um, I was at a Christmas party with uh, a number of writers at a bookstore in Boston, and Gary Braver, who is another author, is somebody I've known for 25 years. And we were both talking about the Me Too movement, which was in its, I mean, it was really exploding over the news at that point. And I said to him, it would be interesting to explore this topic from both the male and the female perspective, an illicit affair with a male author writing the man's point of view and the woman author writing the female point of view. And the idea just took off from there. He would write a chapter, he'd send it to me. I would write a chapter, I'd send it back to him. It was truly a collaboration where I wrote the women in the story and he wrote the men. About two-thirds of the book is women because there are three main characters. There's the professor, there's the student, and there's the detective. And the detective and the student are both women. So you wrote about two-thirds of the book? Oh, maybe. I don't know. But I have to say the male point of view is the most important one in this story, because it's really a story about when you make a mistake and your life is crumbling around you, what will you do to to try and salvage your life? It's a story about a university professor. 
he's married, but he has a sort of fatal attraction to one of his students who is also crazy about him. And in a moment of weakness, they do have an affair and things become dangerous. And then she ends up dead. So the question is, did he kill her? Did he do it to save his marriage and his career or did somebody else? From his perspective, it wasn't quite attraction because he could have stayed away from her if she wasn't so pushy to be with him. Uh, well, you know what? We can always stay away from things that we shouldn't be doing, right? But that's the whole thing about humans. We are frail people. We make mistakes. And sometimes temptation is just too hard to turn away. Let's go back and talk about how this all pulls together. Did you and Gary sit on the phone or have meetings and just go over the various plot sequences? I know that if you're writing a novel solo, you don't necessarily have to chart it out fully until the first draft is done. Right. And I don't. I never chart it out ahead of time. This was actually, we were flying by the seat of our pants. He would just write a chapter and I write a chapter. All we knew was that that Taryn, the, the college student, would be dead. We knew she was going to die. And even about halfway through the first draft, we still didn't know who the bad person was, who killed her. So we were feeling our way through this plot. It was a complicated way of, of writing. And I would never recommend this to first-time authors because it probably took twice as long as it needed to just because we were both feeling our way through this. The other thing is, is that we wrote this in chronological order. We started off with the affair, and then Taryn dies halfway through, and then Frankie, the detective, comes in in the last half of the book. What happened was that after we showed it to our editor, she said, I love Frankie, the detective. I want to see her earlier in the story. The only way to, to show her earlier in the story is to open up with a murder. So that was how we got the structure, which was after and before, you know, going back and forth between what happened and then what happened before. So when you were taking those later chapters and moving before events from the first iteration, at that point, you could kind of either pull Frankie back a little or push her forward, depending upon where in the sequence that scene was. Yes, it was a lot of cut and pasting. Because I've done film, I feel it as if it's like we filmed the whole thing and now I'm the editor and I'm in the editing room trying to fit these scenes together. But the hard part was not to reveal things because I mean, now we know what happens at the end of the story. We see the investigation interspersed with the background of how we got to this horrible crisis point. So you're trying to tell the story while not revealing too much of the plot as you're cutting back and forth. By the time Frankie enters the scene in the first draft, the reader knows who done it, but if you're continuing to the end, then at that point you have to make sure there are sufficient red herrings to throw the reader off. You know what? That's always the challenge for every mystery novel. It's always how do you throw the reader off? Because readers are pretty smart, especially mystery readers. Oh my gosh, they're probably the smartest people. Well, okay, I take that back. Science fiction readers are pretty smart too. Right. Um, so here you're trying to pull one over on them and that's not easy to do. Do you recall any specific instance that you could talk about without a spoiler where it became particularly difficult in the book? Well, one of the questions that came up and it starts off in the very beginning is did Taryn commit suicide? Because the opening scene is she's just jumped off her fourth floor balcony and she's dead on the sidewalk. And it appears that it might have been a suicide. And the last scene we see of her alive, she is thinking about suicide. 
So that was one of the red herrings. Did she kill herself or did she not? At the point that Frankie came in in that first version, did the reader know who it was? No. No. So that was still going to be at the very end of the book. That was still going to be at the very end of the book. Yes. Here's the structure that I, I like to think of it as. I like to think of it as a train wreck. And we come in on the story after the train has wrecked. Then we pull back to see how that train got to that point. And then the rest of the story is what happens after that. What role did Gary Braver play once the first draft was done? This was a really difficult challenge because we have a main character who is a male professor who's married, who's betrayed his wife, who's pretty much gone against all the university rules, and a man who's actually very relieved when the girl dies. How do you make that man likable? That is a really tough challenge. And so I think that was what Gary was struggling with for a lot of the book. How do you make Jack likable? You have to make him human. You have to make him somehow relatable to every man who's ever faced temptation. That's where it comes back to that she's more Glenn Close (laughs) from Fatal Attraction, (laughs) and he's more Michael Douglas, Mm -hmm. because that's the only way you can really do it, because otherwise he's a predator. Exactly. Exactly. We did not want to make him a predator. We wanted to have him to be a man who faced a moment of weakness and failed. But on the other hand, even though Taryn is a bit of Glenn Close in this book, she had to also be somehow sympathetic. We had to understand why she was so desperate for love, why she was so desperate to hold on to this man that she was completely fixated on. So we went back into her past story, and this is a young woman who has been abandoned again and again in her life. That's the state of affairs of her life, and she does not want to be abandoned again. Gary Braver is a professor, correct? Yes, and that really came in handy because this was set on a university campus. Now, the scenes where she is discussing classical stories, Medea and Aeneas, did he write those segments and then you put them into her voice? How did that work? He was familiar with a lot of this classical literature, but I was familiar with parts that he was not familiar with. So we kind of combined our knowledge of classical history as well as some very famous stories. I had just finished reading the Aeneid about King Aeneas, uh, the Trojan warrior who betrays Queen Dido. And I was so moved by that story. I told Gary, this has to be one of our central themes, because in the myth, After he leaves Dido, abandons her to go on to greater glory, she commits suicide on her own funeral pyre. And it's a pitiful, pitiful scene. Um, What also made me upset was that as he is sailing away, he can look back and he could see her funeral pyre. And I just thought, does he not feel a moment's regret about what he did to this woman? So that, to me, became what moved Taryn, the college student. Is she going to be a pitiful Queen Dido? Or is she going to do something different? Is she going to have her revenge? Anyway, the, all, these, all these classical stories about men betraying women became so important to the story. Tess Gerritsen, the character of Frankie Loomis, how did she emerge? Now, one thing I noticed in this book is that while we know the race of Taryn and Liam, her former boyfriend, because she's blonde, he's rich, but we do not know whether any of the other characters are black, white, Asian, whatever. Is that deliberate? I don't know if it's deliberate so much as it's a fallback position (laughs) that's comfortable. That's comfortable for me. You know, I'm Asian American, and I tend to write, strangely enough, about white people. And it is probably a fallback to my childhood when everything I saw on television was white. 
So I'm writing about the characters that I grew up with, and they were not me. But Frankie, Detective Frankie Loomis, has a large part of me in that she's older, she's a mother, she has difficult teenage daughters, and she has a mother's eye. There's something about having raised children that gives you eyes in the back of your head. And that's what Frankie has. She can, she can walk onto a crime scene of a young woman who's just committed suicide, or so it looks like. And she can see something is wrong because she is a mom. And I, I sort of pulled my own mommy instincts into that story. Is it easier or hard to differentiate a character like Frankie from, say, Rizzoli? Yeah. You know, I like to think of Frankie as being Rizzoli in 20 years. <laughs> and then you give her a male partner. Yes. Well, what I loved about Frankie is that her partner is, uh, you know, they're, they've both been at this for a while. They're kind of like an old squabbling married couple, but they... They, they really are kind to each other. They have this bond. And in fact, because Frankie is a widow, her partner is always trying to set her up with men that he's met. <laughs> so it's more like a familiar brother-sister duo. And I like the fact that it is comfortable. There's no sexism involved. They respect each other. They may both be in their 50s, but they are a good team. There's a lot of dealings with college kids. Uh, did you research that with people of the next generation? I deferred to Gary because that's the age group he works with every day. He knows them better than I do. He knows how they think. He knows the kinds of things they will say. So his classroom scenes are probably taken right from his own personal experience. There are certain techniques you have that he doesn't necessarily know about because they haven't entered his consciousness. And the reverse is true. What did you learn from Gary Braver for future books? Well, you know, the reason I worked with him is that I wanted a real male perspective on things. And what I learned is that men think differently from women. They view women differently. And I was somewhat disturbed by some of the things that came out. But then I asked my husband, is that how men really think? And he goes, yep. So I think the one thing I learned is that men see women in a far more sexualized way than we see ourselves. We like to imagine that men look at us and they're they're, they're dazzled by our intelligence. Well, no, they're not. <laughs> their eyes are somewhere else. And that appears to be, at least from the few men I've talked to, seems to be almost universal. Uh, gay and straight, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see this as a film? Has anybody optioned it? It's actually being sent out to, to studios right now as we speak. I think they started pitching it this week. The politics of a book like this. Did that concern you at all, how people would respond to yes. a book that about Me Too? Yes. It's a very sensitive topic. And we knew we were going to be hitting some hot buttons here, partly because it's about a man who has violated the Me Too. Really, he's done everything he shouldn't be doing. And yet we have made him almost a semi-hero. We knew that was going to get people upset. And also, I think Gary brought up some issues about political correctness that he is kind of frustrated by as a professor. And that is going to upset people as well. We knew it was going to be sensitive. Yeah. What examples of political correctness bothered him? You remember? Yeah. One of them is that he has to include trigger warnings in his classes. He has to say ahead of time, this class may trigger some unhappy or upsetting thoughts for you. And Gary's point is that's life. Why should I have to include trigger warnings? But now it's part of the curriculum. 
It is part of the curriculum, yes. When did you finish the book? Was it during the pandemic? Oh, gosh, I have to think about this. It was a good year ago. So uh, the pandemic was just getting started. How did the pandemic affect the period from when you sent the book off to when it finally came out? Was life just the same since the manuscript was coming to you via your computer and stuff like that? I think the big thing was we were all set to meet our editor and she had to cancel because of the pandemic. But I think what changed for us and for writers as well is that suddenly we didn't have to do face-to-face events or interviews or travel. We stayed at home. And for many writers, I think it turned out to be a very creative time. I finished another book in the meantime, and I finished a screenplay. So yes, it was for writers anyway. I don't think it was too great a burden to stay home. Do you see yourself going on more book tours or now that you've discovered the comfort of home? (laughs) uh... (laughs) Yes, it is nice to just do your event on Zoom, but readers don't like that. Readers really want that face-to-face, and there's nothing like standing in front of an audience and being able to field questions right there. Zoom is, well, as you know, it's tough because normal conversation involves a lot of interruption. It adds to the liveliness of discussion, and I miss that. From my perspective as an interviewer, I would rather have you across from me. I could watch you while you speak And sometimes just watching you will give me ideas of where to go with the next question, which I can't do now. Yeah, I'm looking at the photo of your lovely dog. So, (laughs) but I can't see whether you're responding to my response with disgust or amusement. And that really, really helps keep a conversation going. Did you go masked and meet up with Gary a few times afterward? No. No, the only time we met up was a couple months ago to take a joint photo. Everything was done remotely. Tess Gerritsen, you always dreamed of writing Nancy Drew, but wound up writing romantic thrillers before you got around to Nancy Drew. (laughs) You know what? I write everything I want to write, and I don't think about the genre necessarily. I started off writing romantic thrillers because I was reading a lot of them back then. In the 30-book span of my career, I've done science fiction, I've done historical, I have done ghost stories, medical thrillers, detective fiction. It's just whatever story grabs me at the moment. How hard is it to go back at this point to Rosolian Isles? Oh, well, I finished one. I mean, it's coming out in 2022. It's number 13 in the series, and it's called Listen to Me. Every time I write a Rosolian Isles book, there has to be a hook that makes me excited. And in this case, with number 13, it's Jane's mother who takes center stage. Maybe it's my age, a sign of my age, but I'm more fascinated now by older women and what they see and the wisdom they bring to an investigation. So in this story, Jane's mom sees things from her living room window, uh, and nobody really believes what she thinks. (laughs) Your Asian background both sides of the family. Your father was an immigrant from China, is that right? My mother was. My father was American-born, yes. How does that play into any of these stories, or is it just peripheral? I think it only became central to my stories when I wrote this book called The Silent Girl, which was a Rosalia Now story, and was set in Boston's Chinatown. And I was able to bring in some fairy tales from my childhood, particularly my mother's Stories about the Monkey King, who's a, it's, it's an iconic figure in Chinese mythology. 
But other than that, I have not done much with my Asian background. Your dad is a chef, is that right? Was a chef? He was a chef. He had a restaurant with his family. He was a fantastic cook. And it's a funny thing that in Chinese families, the men are often really, really good cooks. It's not, it's not limited to the women in the kitchen. So um, I, I grew up with great food. <laughs> I assume some of it found its way into some of the 30 books. Oh, absolutely. I wrote a book called The Shape of Night, which is a, sort of a ghost story. But a lot of that has to do with the sensuality of food and cooking and what it's like to be in the kitchen and listen to the chopping of the onions on the board and the smells and the flavors. So I love to write about food. I love to read about food. Tess Gerritsen, Rizzolian Isles, it became a show over time. What involvement did you have with the show aside from being in the final episode, before that, did you have involvement over the years? No, I had the best job in the world. I got paid to be a consultant and I never had to do a thing. (laughs) So it was really all in the hands of this team of writers and the showrunners. I just got to sit back and, and enjoy the show the way everyone else did. Did you ever feel like, oh my God, my characters would never do that? That's inevitable. When you release your your book to Hollywood, there are going to be changes. And I think one of the main changes is that my very ordinary looking character suddenly became beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Jane Rizzoli is not beautiful in the book. She looks like everybody else. And suddenly she's played by gorgeous Angie Harmon. The other big difference, though, was Maura Isles. In the books, she's she's kind of a scary uh, goth kind of figure. And in the TV show, she's played by a beautiful, sunny blonde. So they change things. In your own mind, you can keep them separate when you're writing a book, though. I, would I just do. Assume. I do. I, yeah, I try, I try to keep them separate. When people respond to the books, do they refer back to the actors? Or are they aware that Tess Gerritsen's characters are not the TV characters? Oh, they know right away. I mean, if they've read the book, they'll say, this is not... Sasha Alexander, the actress who plays Maura Isles, this is something completely different. So I I think readers learn to separate the two sides. Just when you look at Bones and Kathy Reich's series, there are differences there as well. Readers learn to tell the difference. When you first watched that, what was your thought watching that first episode? Do you remember? Yeah, it was an out-of-body experience. First of all, I didn't ever really think this was going to happen. Uh, Anybody who's worked with Hollywood knows how few projects really make it to the screen. So every step of the way, I thought, it's not going to happen, not going to happen. Don't get your hopes up. And all of a sudden, there it is. (laughs) So yeah, I was surprised that it made it. And I was thrilled. It's It's a wonderful thing to see your stories take shape on television. Can you watch them again? I have watched them all several times, so I, I don't really, I don't really go looking for them on HBO Max. <laughs> Do you recall how many of your plot ideas from the books found their way into the series? I mean, part of it is that there's only a limited number of right. plots at your end, and at their end, there's a hundred something. Really, only two of my books made it into into the series. Uh, the first was the the. Um, the pilot episode, which was based on my book, The Apprentice. And then one of my short stories made it into one of the episodes. Uh, the short story was called John Doe, and uh, that became a, um, one of the episodes. But other than that, the uh, the team of writers did their own episodes. Did they ever consider doing made-for-TV movies with these actors 
for your books? There was talk of that, but nothing ever happened. Tess Gerritsen, what is a drift from 1993? Oh my gosh, you are really going back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wrote a script, which became the television movie called Adrift. It's about a couple on a sailboat that encounters a derelict sailboat and they try to save the people who are on board. And it turns out what they're taking aboard their own ship are some very dangerous people. So it was sort of a, a, a open seas pirate kind of a, a, a crisis. You wrote it on spec and sent it out? Yes, I did. And it was picked up. CBS uh, made it into a television movie. I was surprised when that happened. But again, Hollywood is, it's, you just don't know what's going to happen. Everything is a roll of the dice. Apparently, you composed a piece for playing with fire? Yes, I did. That was a really special project. The story started in Venice, where I was having my birthday. And I had a nightmare. I woke up from this nightmare, really just shaking. In the nightmare, I had been playing my violin. And there was a baby sitting next to me in the dream. And as I played this very strange tune, the baby's eyes glowed red and she turned into a monster. So I woke up and I thought, whoa, what does that mean? This is a book. Somehow there's a book about the power of music to awaken evil. And that became the story Playing With Fire about a woman violinist who buys a piece of music, takes it home. And every time she plays it, her three-year-old daughter goes berserk, becomes a little monster. It has its roots in the Holocaust in Italy. So that story was all about this, this haunted piece of music and where this music really came from. So about halfway through writing this story and having to describe this haunting piece of music, I had another dream. And I woke up from the dream and the melody was in my head. And because I'm a sort of an amateur musician, I was able to sit down and immediately write it out. And it took me about two weeks to complete the composition. It was one of those strange projects that was inspired by dreams and ended up with a piece of music and a book. According to Wikipedia, it's been performed. It has been. It's, it was performed by a, a concert violinist. I happen to know a music producer in London. He saw the piece of music and he said, let me, let me send it to a violinist I know. Uh, named Suzanne Howe. She's a Toronto concert violinist. And she recorded it. You know, this whole story is almost, it's so bizarre. It's almost supernatural. So she was performing this music. Or she was practicing the music in her apartment in Paris. And she said, a crowd of people gathered outside her window to listen to her play. That's, that's how, I guess, they were enchanted by this music as well. And she did record it in the studio. But here's the other weird thing about it. She read the book after she'd recorded the music. And in the book, the violinist who composes this piece of music has a violin that was made in Cremona, Italy, 270 years ago. And she called me and she said, this is so bizarre. I recorded your music on a violin that was made in Cremona 270 years ago. <laughs> can people listen to that anywhere? Yes, they can. It's on YouTube, in fact. The name of the tune is Incendio. It's spelled I-N-C-E-N. D-I-O. And the artist's name is Suzanne Howe, H-O-U. Tess Gerritsen, Island Zero, directed by your son, which currently streams on Hoopla. What's the story behind that movie? <laughs> the story is that I've always loved horror films. Uh, I grew up with horror films. They were my favorite genre as a kid. And I was with my son in the garden. He lives in Maine. And I said, 
I really want to make a horror film. Let's, let's do one together. So it started off as just a fun family project, low budget. Let's see what we can do. Something set in the state of Maine. And before we knew it, we had hired a cast. We had a film crew. We went on to the islands off the coast of Maine and we filmed this, this movie called Island Zero. It's a village of fishermen on an island off the coast. And all of a sudden their phones go dead and their internet is interrupted and everybody who leaves the island doesn't come back. So the question is, what is happening? And that's, that was the plot behind Island Zero. The Magnificent Beast is a documentary. You and Josh co-directed it and you said it's about pork? It sounds crazy, doesn't it, that you would make a whole movie about pork. But here's, here's the background on that. I always love mysteries. I'm so fascinated by historical mysteries. And I was traveling in Istanbul and wanted bacon. And since it's a Muslim country, it's very hard to find bacon. So I began to wonder about food taboos. Why would a meat that to me is so delicious be forbidden to Jews and Muslims? What was the historical background on that? And that's how the story started. We wanted to find out where the pork taboo came from. But in the course of filming this thing for a couple of years, we realized that one of the answers really lies in this essential nature of the pig as an animal. We have so many conflicts with pigs through, through the centuries. You know, they're wild boars, they're dangerous. We call them horrible things. We think they're dirty. We think they're disgusting. And yet they are the, one of the most intelligent mammals on earth. So what is it about the pig that gives us this conflict and this push and pull? And that conflict and the mystery behind the pork taboo was, was what really made this film go forward. So we finished it, and it's going to be distributed via PBS later on this fall. So eventually it will pop up somewhere, Netflix, wherever. We'll probably distribute it ourselves other than PBS, but PBS stations around the country will have access to it in their library. Is there any other films in the works right now? Not yet. Right now I'm working on the next book in the series. You know, there's always so many projects that are calling to me and demand my attention. Except for a couple of teleplays that I'm doing with a friend, I'm really focusing on books. Tess Gerritsen, you said that you were able to get an entire book, Rosalian Isles book, finished, and that's off now yes. working the galley route? It's already got a re uh, release date of sometime, I think, in June 2022. That means you're working on a book after that as well. I am right now, yes. Do you plan on doing another uh, book with Gary Braver? I think the process of working with another author is very complex. And it took twice as long as it would for me to write my own book. So probably not. You know, it was eye-opening. It was fun. And I think we, we turned in a book that's pretty unique. But I'm so used to being on my own that it's, it's difficult. <laughs> Tess Gerritsen, as a writer... We have spent the past 15 months, 16 months in a pandemic situation. And while we're coming out of it, more or less here in the States, depending on variants, and it's still going full tilt in other parts of the world, how do you think the pandemic will play in either your books or others' books? Do you think you can have characters wearing masks? Well, I'm already taking account of that in my next Rosalie Niles book. Nobody shakes hands in the story. Everybody is very aware that in the hospitals, there are a lot of people dying. I do have a character who has uh, x-ray changes in her lungs of having had COVID. But my book takes place after 
after the pandemic is over. It's just we're looking at the after effects. I also contributed to a collection that is being uh, written by, it's a group of authors from the Authors Guild, and it takes place on the rooftop of a New York City high rise. And it's a group of people during the pandemic, and they each tell a story, sort of like the Black Death comes to the high rises of New York. How about books set in the weirdness of the Trump years? (laughs) I don't want to go there. (laughs) It's, you know... I had to live through that. Please don't make me go back and live it again. (laughs) Same with me. I don't want to watch a movie or read a book set where Donald Trump is in the background unless it's a comic thriller by Carl Hyacinth. (laughs) Well, you know, the the problem is that what we just went through was was so out of this world, so unbelievable that um, it's hard to top that with fiction. The things that he would say, the things that he would do, the closest I've seen was Wonder Woman, 1984. Did you see that film? Sure. Yes, that was a Donald Trumpian figure, but it would have been ridiculous if we hadn't just lived through it ourselves. So when you you saw, you you watch this politician who becomes president, who looks like Donald Trump, you think, well, we know who that is. But if we had to watch that 15 years ago, we would have thought, oh, that's outrageous. That That never would happen. I interviewed Carl Hyacin after Biden had won, but before he took office. And I, I mentioned that had I read the book before November, it would have been a tough sell for me. It was a lot easier to, to laugh when you knew he was going to be gone. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Before it was almost a tragedy and then after it becomes a comedy. But that's what they say. Comedy is his tragedy with time, right? (laughs) Right. As an Asian American, racism that we've seen in the past year, how does that affect you in a place like Maine where you're living? And also, does that affect your writing on some level? I pay very close attention to what's happening. But I feel somehow protected from it because I live in this very liberal little enclave in New England. We just don't see the things in Maine that you would see in other places in the country. I'm I'm sure it must happen, but it's just not as blatant. I think part of the issue is that in Maine, people know each other. We are know our neighbors. It's it's you know it's one giant community. So you know your Asian neighbor. You know your black neighbor. They are individuals, and they don't become this horrifying, scary other that you would want to attack. So maybe that's part of the problem: is that people don't know each other anymore. Is everybody vaxxed up there? Oh, we have one of the highest vaccination rates in the country. You're able to pretty much walk around freely. Oh yes, I mean I'm going to restaurants and taking off my mask. I didn't do that for 15 months. It feels pretty safe up here. A more general question about politics. As a mystery writer, I realize that on some degree, the the analogy is, say, if the plot is a clothesline, you can add all kinds of different clothes to the plot, all of the ideas, the politics, your feelings as clothes within the context of a book. Are you ever worried about something becoming dated all the time. That's the great joy of writing historical fiction. It's already dated, so you don't have to worry about going being out of style. I think what I worry about most, because I write about science and technology, is the technology is dated within a couple of years. You know, I wrote a book called Vanish, in which one of the plot points was a, <laughs> a videotape. 
And I think people who look at that book now and say, well, why didn't you just put it on YouTube? What's this thing about this scary videotape? And I thought when I wrote that, YouTube did not exist. <laughs> it's, it's, there's no way to anticipate how quickly technology will advance and everything you write is going to be outdated. Does that present a problem in terms of, say, the research for the Rizzolian Isles books in terms of what can happen in a morgue? No, I, I think that's one thing that hasn't changed that much, which is the process of doing an autopsy. That is not that different. What's different, of course, is DNA technology. But the actual gross anatomy part of it, um, you know, it's pretty stable, that knowledge. Do you have cops and medical people that you send your manuscripts out to each time when you're done, just to be sure? I have people I can ask about topics, such as, you know, how long does it take when you subpoena uh, somebody's phone records, how, how long does it take to get that back? Uh, you know, that, that becomes relevant to a story. But as time has gone by, I haven't been doing as much. Uh, I have a pretty deep library of medical literature. So when it comes to pathology, I can usually look things up pretty quickly. Tess Gerenson, you mentioned the Rizzolian Isles that's finished. Do you plan to write more science fiction? Not at the moment. I think the big disappointment for me is my favorite book, and I think the book that is still my my best, was Gravity, and that sold the fewest copies. I think it's because the market for science fiction is very small. There aren't enough readers for that genre. I think part of it is that these days the genre has become subsumed by mainstream. It's hard to be a genre writer in that sense. Let's face it, whether you like it or not, you call these mysteries, but these are mainstream books. I know. I know. You know, it's the, everybody wants to put us in these little categories. And I was asked a question, what is literary versus popular fiction? And I said, I don't know the difference. Don't ask me that question. I don't, I, I don't know how to draw that line. I like to say that um, literary is all about the labeling and about the packaging. If a, a publisher de- deems this book a literary book, they will give it an abstract cover and put decal pages on it. And everybody will look at that and say, oh, this must be literary without even opening up the book. Uh, one final question, and this concerns what's happened in the past year and the race and race history in America. For you, Tess Gerritsen, how does that affect your writing, if at all? After the Black Lives Matter movement, I became much more sensitive to what I'm writing. I have a scene in the New Rizzolian Owls book where she is interrogating, where she's questioning an African-American teenager. And I suddenly looked at that situation from his point of view and thought, he's scared. He's, here he is being talked to by a cop. It's not just he's answering questions. He's worried that he's going to be sent to jail for something he didn't do. And that completely changed the dynamic of that of that scene and that dialogue. So, I think that we've we've all become more sensitized to to the burden of being a minority and dealing with police officers. Did that affect you at all as an Asian? It did. Even though we have sometimes had conflicts between the Asian and the Black population, something like this that happens, you know, to George Floyd. It makes you realize we're all sort of in this boat together. We're always going to, there's always going to be an other. And the, the choice of who the other is can rotate between Blacks and Asians or Hispanics. But we're always aware that we are the other and we have to stand together. That's a great ending. Uh, I'm going to ask you this because I'm not going to put this on the air. 
How did they reelect Susan Collins? How could that happen? <laughs> we had a. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, she was behind in the polls. We were so confident she was going to go down. But I think that her Democratic opponent was just weak, was not a very good candidate. <laughs> okay. I, mean, yes, I was so disappointed. <laughs> you're not the only one. I know. And I, I, we, we gave so much money to her opponent. I and mean, we, just, we just poured money into that opponent. And she, she had a huge battle chest, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough. You've been listening to an interview with Tess Gerritsen, who's the co-author with Gary Braver of Choose Me. Rizzoli and Isles TV series can be found on HBO Max. Island Zero can be streamed on Hoopla for free, and it's also available on various other sites. And The Magnificent Beast will eventually be on PBS. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>